Almighty God, we salute you this morning and we say good morning to you. We thank you for this new day, this Sabbath day, this fresh chance to be with you, to take a step back from the cares and distractions of this week, to spend some time focused on you and on your word. It is a real pleasure to stand in your company, Father God. Let your glory shine on us today. And may we reflect some measure of that glory back to you in our heartfelt worship. Lord Jesus, we welcome you to Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church this morning. We look forward to seeing you face to face. This morning we'll read part of the Gospel of John, the scene of you standing before Pilate. May the words in John's Gospel come to life for us and may we hear your voice. And your call upon our lives. Father God, Brother Jesus, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to be here with us. We ask that you would help us worship you in the right way. That you would help us understand your word as it is proclaimed. And that you would help us love you more fully and follow you more truly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are our God and we are your people. This service of worship is for you. We want you to be honored and pleased by what you hear from us today. We can't do that by ourselves and so we ask for your help. Close our ears to all of the buzzing intrusions of the world And settle our hearts so that for at least this one hour, we would be content just to be with you. Father God, Brother Jesus, Holy Spirit, we admit that in this past week we did the very things we knew that we weren't supposed to do. And because we were distracted with that sin, we also failed to do the very things that we knew that we should do. Forgive us. Remove our guilt so that we can stand before you unashamed this morning and help us, strengthen us in this coming week so that we might live more purely. You have blessed us in wonderful ways this past week. And we're grateful to you for those blessings. We thank you for our homes and our families, for our daily bread. We thank you that we have people who love us and are happy to see us. We thank you for the beautiful weather. We thank you for the sound of children at Valley Christian School and the sound of children in this sanctuary and in our busy nurseries and in our Sunday school classes. And we thank you especially for the arrival of Sienna Grace. And we ask that you bless her and her parents, Joe and Rachel Goff, as they settle into life together. Almighty God, you are our strength and our shield and ever-present help in times of trouble. And we ask for your strength and your help for the troubles that we face We ask that you would relieve those who are oppressed with fear and anxiety. 
that your very presence would give them a settled peace. We ask that you would sustain those who are weary, that you would give them the power to face their responsibilities. We ask that you would heal those who are sick, that you would restore full health and strength and vigor. We ask you especially to comfort the family of Earlene Shellmeyer upon her passing and thank you for her faithful service and witness throughout many long years. Eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are God and we are your people. We pray to you this morning because you are able to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. And we offer these prayers in the name of Jesus who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our second reading this morning comes from John's Gospel, chapter 18. I will read verses 28 through 38. Hear the word of God. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were doing no evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own laws. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose was I born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Breathe on us today your holy breath of unchanging truth, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. The Apostle Paul was just plain smart. He was worldly. He was educated. He was well-traveled. He was multilingual. He lived in the Jewish homeland, but he was a citizen of Rome. He traveled to Athens and uh, debated local philosophers. He quoted Greek poetry, probably knew the entire Torah by heart, and wrote the most intellectually challenging and theologically complicated parts of Scripture. Some of the stuff Paul wrote was so advanced that even the Apostle Peter admitted that it was difficult to understand. Paul was an intellectual heavyweight. And yet, in spite of his headiness and intellectual prowess, we hear him say something surprising in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on the power of God. Paul, the worldly intellectual, says that there is a difference between his preaching, which is nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and the two great intellectual achievements of high Greek culture, rhetoric and philosophy. Rhetoric is the art of speaking in a convincing manner, in a manner, During the time of Socrates, who lived a few centuries before Jesus, teachers went from city to city in the Greek world teaching the art of rhetoric. Because the Greek cities were democracies, and because their courts used large juries, a person could become powerful and influential in Greek society by learning to speak well. A person who mastered the art of rhetoric could give convincing campaign speeches and get elected. And once in office, they could use the art of rhetoric to convince fellow lawmakers to adopt certain policies. And in the courts of law, a person trained in rhetoric could convince a jury of his case. When Paul mentions lofty speech and plausible words, he's talking about this Greek art of rhetoric. Paul is saying that he hasn't employed the art of rhetoric in preaching the gospel. According to the New Testament, Paul was an unimpressive public speaker. He wasn't the world's greatest evangelist by being the world's best preacher. In contrast to rhetoric, which is the art of speaking in a convincing way, philosophy is the love of wisdom. That's what the word means in Greek. And it is the disciplined pursuit of truth through the use of human reason. Philosophy tries to discover the most primary truths about all things and answer questions like, what is truth? What is beauty? What is the good? What are all things made out of? How did things come to be? 
The Greeks are known for philosophy and the work that they did more than 2,000 years ago continues to be studied today. When Paul says, my message was not in plausible words of wisdom so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, what he's saying is, I'm not a philosopher. Paul was a sophisticated intellectual. He was familiar with the best thinking of his time. But Paul understands that the gospel is something different from human wisdom. And preaching is very different from beautiful speechifying. Now these days, philosophy has been taken down from the pedestal that it once stood upon. Philosophy is now a subject studied by a few eggheads hell-bent on being sure that they never get a job or are never invited to join a fantasy football league. I can say this because I spent all of my years in college and in graduate school studying philosophy, and I taught philosophy to undergraduates for nine years myself. Nowadays, the natural sciences occupy the pedestal that once philosophy stood upon. That transition took place about 150 years ago. In fact, in the early days of what we now call natural science, that discipline was called natural philosophy. My point is this. Paul, who is a well-educated man, says right up front that the gospel is something entirely different from, something of an entirely different order than the highest human intellectual endeavor of his time. In his day, that endeavor was called philosophy. Today, it might be called theoretical physics. I'm belaboring this point because an awful lot of unnecessary confusion happens when people think about divine revelation in the same way they think about human wisdom. Whether that wisdom be the philosophy of Socrates or the physics of Einstein. So let me put the matter very bluntly. God's revelation is separate from and of a different order than all of the knowledge we attain by human reason alone. Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. The Roman governor in Jerusalem, Pilate is the lawgiver. He's the law enforcer. He has the power of life and of death. It's clear from the conversation between them that Pilate is not at all interested in this squabble among the Jews. I get the impression he is amused by how upset the Jews are and can't quite figure out what all the fuss is about. And at the end of their interview, Jesus says to Pilate, For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. To which Pilate answers, What is truth? We live in an era when belief in absolute truth, eternal truth, transcendent truth has become rather rare. The idea of truth with a capital T, truth that is true in all places and at all times and for all people, that idea has fallen out of favor. People these days say things like, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. In the world of philosophy, this point of view is called skepticism. And it is a philosophy that has a very long history. Pyro of Ellis, who lived about 300 years before Jesus, was a skeptic. And in his philosophy, we hear, and it is his philosophy that we hear in the mouth of Pilate. According to Pyro, 
We can't make any definite statements about ethical matters, about what is right and what is wrong. There are different points of view, and it's just impossible to decide which opinion is correct. According to Pyro and the skeptics, the best thing to do is to refuse to say what is right or wrong and simply do whatever makes you feel most comfortable. Pyro and the skeptics deny that we can know truth with a capital T and say the best thing to do is to do whatever works out in your own interest. This is precisely what we see in Pilate. What is truth? He asks. Obviously sneering at this uneducated Jesus who naively believes that there's such a thing as truth. And then when it comes time to make the decision, because he is the judge, even though he finds Jesus innocent of any crime, Pilate still sends Jesus to his death. Because that was the simpler, more convenient path for him. How far are we, as individuals and as a culture, from Pilate with his skeptical view of life? How willing are we to say, there is no such thing as absolute transcendent truth, so I'll just do whatever I think is best. I think that this point of view, the skeptical point of view, is in fact a total disaster. And I think that for both philosophical and theological reasons. Let me briefly touch on the philosophical issue and then turn to the theological objections to skepticism. In the history of Western philosophy, which has its roots way back there with the Greeks, there have been periods when philosophers and the broader culture believe that there is absolute truth that we can know, and periods when philosophers and the broader culture believe that there is no absolute truth, or if there were, we can't know it. Historically, the pendulum has swung back and forth between those two opposite positions. For example, Socrates and Plato believed that there are transcendent truths that humans can know. Pyro and the skeptics deny this. At this moment in history, we happen to be in a skeptical period. 150 years ago, we were not. So, first a word of warning to my dear skeptical friends. The period of skepticism will not last forever. Your momentary victory will not be final. And a word of encouragement to my dear friends who believe in timeless truth, though they might be a little shy about saying them out loud. Don't worry, the pendulum will swing back in due time. Now let's talk about what's happening theologically. Jesus believed in absolute, eternal, transcendent truth. That is abundantly clear. So many of his sayings begin with the phrase, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you. Jesus not only preached the truth, he even claimed to be the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As followers of Jesus, as followers of a teacher who believed in absolute truth, it doesn't make much sense for us to say there are no absolute truths. If we say that, we deny the very spirit of Christ. But there's another problem here. A problem different from the problem of skepticism, and that is the problem of the relationship between revelation and human wisdom. 
I am a great lover of human wisdom. I believe that Christians should be the smartest people on the planet. I believe that we should be the best scholars and the best scientists and the best artists and the best musicians and the best public servants and the best business leaders. And I believe that our deeply held faith that God designed and created this world, that God loves and redeems people, that God is the perfection of all justice and truth and beauty and goodness. I believe that that faith should be the greatest motivator to excellence in all human wisdom. But... Human wisdom and human reason do not and cannot know all things. Science does not have all the answers. In fact, the biggest questions, the moral questions, science doesn't even bother to ask. There are some things we only know because they are revealed to us supernaturally by God himself. Human wisdom might make me a great scholar of the biblical languages. Human science might inform me of all of the archaeological details of the Holy Land. Human scholarship might show me the history of the people of Israel. Human imagination and psychological insight might allow me to deeply understand the biography and the character of Jesus of Nazareth, but only God himself can reveal to me that Jesus is the Son of God. I've said it so often from this pulpit that I'm afraid I'm boring you, but it is really important for Christians to recognize that thousands and thousands of people who met Jesus in the flesh, who saw him preach on the hillside, who watched him heal, did not follow him. Jesus supernaturally healed ten lepers and only one returned to even say thanks. In John chapter 6, Jesus begins to lay out some really tough teaching, some things that people didn't want to hear. And verse 60 tells us, on hearing this, many of Jesus' disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then they left. Think of that for just a second. You're a disciple of Jesus. You've been following him around from town to town. You're hearing him preach and teach every day. You're Watching him perform mind-blowing miracles. And then one day, he says something that you don't like. And you leave. You could have been one of Jesus' lieutenants. You could have been one of the apostles. You could have been part of the inner circle. But instead instead you say, he must be off his rocker because he disagrees with me. Chapter 6, verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I don't know if Jesus was discouraged by this, by seeing most of his little band wander away. But he turns to the few who stay behind and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter Blessed Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. How did Peter know that? Peter's eyes saw 
the same things, and Peter's ears heard the same things as those who left. So how did Peter know that there is no one else but Jesus? Jesus answers that question himself in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus had just asked his his disciples who they thought he was. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, natural reason hasn't shown you this, but my father who's in heaven. There are some things we know through natural reason, but there are other things we know through divine revelation. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you can know everything you need to know about God by reason alone. No matter how smart we are, no matter how closely we study all of the data, there are some things about God which are simply only known in revelation. And revelation is received and held by faith, not by reason, not by human wisdom. One of the dangerous errors that Christians sometimes fall into is thinking that reason and revelation are at odds with one another. That human reason and divine revelation are somehow opposed to one another. Let me say this very clearly. That simply is not true. And I say that both as a philosopher and as a Christian. I grew up in a simple Baptist church in a small town in Missouri. And I remember Pastor Sanders telling the story of an old saint who only read the Bible and refused to even read a newspaper. He didn't want to pollute his mind with human wisdom. Now I believe that we should read the Bible every day. But don't let that be an excuse for being ignorant and uninformed. Divine revelation is not at odds with, is not opposed to what we know through natural reason. Rather, divine revelation goes beyond what we can know through natural reason alone. Divine revelation adds something to natural reason that would otherwise be missing. Do you remember the story of Elisha Elisha on the run from the Syrian army? The king of Syria wants Elisha dead. And so he sends out spies to figure out where the prophet is hiding. And they discover that he's in the city of Dothan. And in 2 Kings chapter 16, we read that the king sent out, quote, horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha's servant sees the army with his own eyes. His natural human reason and senses tell him that this is a very dire situation. And indeed it is. But then in verse 17, we read this. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. God's revelation 
God's opening of the eyes of that young man does not oppose or contradict what natural human reason told that young man. Rather, God's revelation adds to and goes beyond what human reason could know. Was the city of Dothan surrounded by a Syrian army with horses and chariots? Absolutely. All you have to do is open your eyes and see. But was the city not also surrounded with a heavenly army? Horses and chariots of fire. Absolutely. But that's a truth that you only get by revelation. Both realities are absolutely true. One is seen through natural means. The other is received through divine revelation. Human reason is important. Human wisdom is to be desired and cultivated. But it is a grave error to imagine that therefore revelation is unnecessary. Here's an analogy. The human eye tells us a lot about the world by sensing the light that comes into it. The human eye has been designed by God to see light of certain wavelengths from violet to red. But beyond those colors, below red and above violet, are other spectra of light. We can't see them, but they are there. Honeybees can see ultraviolet light. And infrared scanners can see wavelengths longer than red, but our natural eyes can't. Human wisdom is like what we can perceive with the natural eye. And divine revelation is like what the honeybee can see. Revelation adds to and goes beyond what we know by natural reason alone. So let's talk a little bit about the content of divine revelation. The third question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer given is, the scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of us. In other words, the Bible teaches us things that we are to believe about God, such as that he's the creator of the world, that he has no beginning and no end, that he's merciful and just, that he wants to have a relationship with people, and that one day he will establish a new earth on which all the saints will live forever. The Bible also teaches us how we should live. In the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, we learn that we should honor our father and our mother, that we should always tell the truth, that we should never steal or commit adultery or covet what other people own. In the New Testament, we learn that we should honor one another above ourselves. That's Romans 12.10. That we should live in harmony with one another and not be proud. That's Romans 12.16. That we should be completely humble and gentle. That's Ephesians 4.2. That we should not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. That's Ephesians 4.29. That we should get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. That's Ephesians 4.31. That's revelation. That's a divinely granted insight into how God wants us to live. We can study biology and history and physics and anthropology for the rest of our lives, and that would be a very good thing to do, but they will never teach us that God, the creator of the universe, who is merciful and just, wants us to be completely humble and gentle. That truth, that absolute transcendent truth, is simply beyond what natural human reason teaches. It is a revelation. Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and says, I was born and have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate, sounding 
thoroughly modern and thoroughly sophisticated and thoroughly skeptical says, huh, what is truth? My prayer for us as Christians is that we understand that God's truth is above and beyond human truth. Not contradicting it, but adding a whole new dimension to it. My hope is that Christians would live in the light of God's truth, even as they remain eager to learn more and more and to contribute to human truth in every discipline. My prayer for us as Christians is that we would recognize that there are absolute, unchanging, and transcendent truths, things which are true for everyone, whether they see it or hear it or believe it, because there is an absolute, unchanging, and transcendent God whether or not we see, hear, or believe in Him. And my prayer for the world, for those who are not yet in the family of God, I pray that they would not be afraid of God's truth. Because, as Jesus said in John 8, 32, the truth sets us free. My prayer for the world, for those who are still on their way to God, is that they would hear and receive God's revelation and allow it to add to and to go beyond what they know by natural means alone. And finally, my prayer for all of us is the prayer of Elisha. Oh Lord, please open their eyes that they may see. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would add your blessing to the proclamation of your word. You are the truth. Amen.